Let's open the Word of God to 1 Peter chapter 4. I hope that the simplicity of the first service and sermon will remain with you as we look at those five verses, verses 1 through 5, arming ourselves with the mind of Christ in verse 1, to be willing to suffer in the flesh by self-denial, to cease from sin, that will certainly have a change in our lives and not live the rest of our time in our bodies to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. That the time past, whenever we have sinned in the past, will be sufficient for us and that we'll be full of doing the will of the Gentiles and want to not, and not want to do any more of it in lasciviousness, lust, drinking, partying, eating, abominable idolatries, and everything that fits in between them. The world's going to think that you're strange. The world's going to think you're weird and different, that you don't run with them to the same excess of riot, that we're not like them, and they're going to speak evil of us. And they did this audience of Peter's. But the Lord Jesus Christ is coming, and they shall give account to Him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. These people that were the enemies of the saints are going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and be judged by Him, and He will defend His saints. When it says the quick and the dead, we understand that as referring to the living and those that have died physically. The quick and the dead. It's used also in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, where the Apostle Paul exhorts Timothy to faithfulness in his ministry based on that coming Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead. Remember when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, there's some that are going to be alive and remain unto His coming. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, they are the alive and the dead are those that are dead physically when Jesus Christ comes. It's important for us to remember that Jesus Christ will raise all the dead. The sea will give up the dead that were in it and death and hell will deliver up the dead that were in them the wicked will get their bodies back so that they suffer in the lake of fire with a body along with their spirit or soul. We should remember that. There is a resurrection, both of the just and the unjust, that is coming. There is a resurrection to a resurrection of damnation and a resurrection of life. But it's a resurrection. All bodies are raised. But our bodies will be glorified and re-inhabited by our spirits and spend eternity with the Lord. And they shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. Now the dead, dead physically, the dead physically will be called back to judgment. And in some respects, the wicked get judged twice. Because how are they dead? They've already died once. Remember that there are three phases to the death that transpired in the Garden of Eden. There was a death to our nature, there was a death to our body, and there's a second death, which is eternal death in the lake of fire. But the dead are going to be brought back to judgment. They'll give an account of their lives. And as we move into verse 6, we want to remember that the context of this verse 6 is the suffering of the righteous. Because that is what we have in verse 1. That is what we're going to have again in verse 13. That is what we've had in chapter 3 in verse verses uh, 14 down through 18. And there are some similarities between 3.18 and this 4.6 that help us. Watch this. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, this is 3.18, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. Being put to death, that's bodily death, 
in the flesh, that's the body, but quickened by the Spirit. There were two aspects to the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we went over this when we were back there at this place. But the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, His human Spirit, went to be with His Father because He said, Father, into Thy hands I commend My Spirit. He said to the thief, Today thou shalt be with Me in paradise. His Spirit went there. His body went to the tomb. Three days and three nights later, His Spirit returned, re-inhabited that body, and He came forth. And that's a resurrection. The body is put back to life. The Spirit is put back in it. We will have glorified bodies. His body was glorified 40 days later when He ascended up into heaven. Here we come to verse verse 6. I connect verse 6 to the first 5, so I'm just going to read it to you at this time. For, for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Some commentators and some preachers say, this is the hardest verse in the Bible. They have about 20 ideas on what it means. As I mentioned earlier, I wrote down 12 to 14 of them by men reputable enough to have their words written down, I guess, if you wanted to hear some of the things that come out of this text. There's several, very, there's several points of variation. Um, the first clause, For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead. A decision has to be made in the word dead. Is that spiritually dead or physically dead? Next clause. Next clause. You don't want to be too hasty in this project. Next clause, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. Who's, what is in the flesh? This is a point of, this is an option. Is in the flesh being in your sin nature or is in the flesh being in your body? No matter which of those two it is, is it modifying the men doing the judging or the men being judged? Next clause, but live according to God in the spirit. In the Spirit is modifying God, is in the Spirit modifying those that live. What does it mean to be in the Spirit? Does it mean to have a spiritual life of regeneration? Or to be in heaven where the spirits of just men are made perfect? The difficulty is trying to present to you many hours of work on this particular verse and to do it in a way that doesn't bore any and teaches all. Some would say that the gospel was preached to those dead in trespasses and sins. Those remaining in the flesh are judged, but those that embrace Christ are regenerated into life. Oh, we need to go back to that first clause. When it says the gospel was preached also to them that are dead, was the gospel preached to all that are dead? In any sense of the word. If that dead is dead in trespasses and sins, or that dead is dead physically, was the gospel preached to all of them? No. So it's got to be a limited segment of the human race. For those of you that want to read the 20, you can look at the outline. I don't want to bore those that aren't, and I don't want to confuse anyone. Listen, some come up with second, second chance salvation out of this verse. The gospel was preached also to them that are dead. Some believe that Jesus went to hell and preached the gospel to those that were dead so that they could be saved with a second chance. Some believe that missionaries will be preaching to those after the resurrection of Jesus Christ during the Great Tribulation that will be have a second chance of salvation. 
Some, like Adam Clark, who I respect on some points, but I I disrespect on many points, believes that the dead here are the antediluvians that uh, Noah preached to, and they were dead because God drowned them because they wouldn't respond to the preaching of Noah. But once the rain began to fall, they did respond and repent, and therefore they live unto God. So they got saved. These are, these are noble. Listen, why do I have Adam Clark on my shelf? Why would I even have a Methodist on my shelf? Because he holds our position in the sonship of Jesus Christ at great cost to himself with the Wesley brothers. That's why. You should hear, you should read Adam Clark on Luke 135 about the incarnate sonship versus eternal sonship. You would say, I know why you have him on your shelf. That man is bold. But now you've got it, you've got these points of variation, meaning, that at this point, who was the gospel preached to? What kind of death is it? Who is doing the judging and who is being judged in the second clause? And do the, does the prepositional phrase in the flesh modify those judging or modify those being judged? What does it mean? This verse gives people nightmares. This verse gives pastors nightmares. Twenty? Are you kidding? I looked at one commentary that was online when it got to this verse. And I respect this uh, high-level a heart surgeon in Houston who was converted later in life and has just gone to bat trying to pull all the commentaries together of a weaker sort. He doesn't get into John Gill and, and the Puritan Fathers, but he's pulled them all together into a beautiful, beautiful website. It's called Precept Austin. Uh, he's in Austin, Texas, and he's got a great testimony. He just had in great big red letters, warning, you know, like it was blinking at you, warning, warning and pointing out how difficult the passage is. But let's start let's start through it very very easily and very quickly and more much more can be said than I'll say but I hope this is enough to get us through it. We have to ask first of all the dead. Is the dead spiritual death or is the dead physical death? We have just had the word used and it's been used this way in the first 5 verses of this chapter. It is physical death. It is physical death. Spiritual death, by the use of that word, has not been used. When it says that God is going to, you're going to give account to Him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead, that is the great day of judgment when bodies are going to be raised up to meet the Lord. So the word dead has just been used, and we just keep on using that until there's a reason to force us to think something different. And remember, these saints were suffering like the Lord Jesus Christ. And this constant mention of suffering in all five chapters of First Peter strongly implies, and we know from history, and we know from the rest of the Bible, that some of them had died. Remember, at Corinth some had died, and some of the Thessalonians had died, and the Thessalonians were worried about those that had died because the Apostle Paul said, you know, that we shouldn't worry as others which have no hope because the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return from heaven, and who's He going to get first? The dead. Then we which are alive remain. So it's the dead. And then it says that they, now this is a limited group of dead. These are dead people that are important to this body. Because if we're going to keep following this context and let us, and let it lead us, then we've got to come to a conclusion that fits what the apostle Peter is talking about here. Now he has just described a judgment that is coming in verse five, and both those that are alive and those that are already dead are going to be judged but he is going to hold out great comfort for those that have died physically in the Lord. And why did they die in the Lord? Because they were put to death 
by men, wicked men, the men that are the enemies in this whole epistle of the apostles, the men that speak evil of them in verse 4. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to those that are in the church cemetery, the physically dead among you that you know and that you are worrying about and wondering about, especially in light of the fact that I just wrote in the previous verse that those physically dead are going to be judged by the Lord. They're going to come back to a judgment. And they died for their faith. What is their lot? What is their condition? The gospel was preached also to them that are dead. It's not all the dead. It's the dead of a certain group, of a certain kind. And it's the dead brethren, uh, the dead saints, martyrs like Stephen, martyrs like James, that, that we have their record of in the New Testament pages, that actually were killed by wicked men for the cause of Christ. So the second clause is that these dead men, the gospel was preached that. The, when it says for, for this cause, it is not referring backward, it is referring forward by the use of the word that. For, for this cause, this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead that. This to that is pointing out why the gospel was preached to the dead because it's going to describe a group that were judged according to men in the flesh, but they live according to God in the Spirit. Their two parts of existence are being considered, and wicked men have done something to their bodily part by judging them as being different and not worthy of life and should be cut off from the earth and dying a martyr's death. But they live according to God in the Spirit, because their spirit is in heaven where the spirits of men made perfect reside with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. That's putting it to you simply. For for this cause, there's a double four there that occurs three times in your Bible. It's Proverbs 28 and 21, and it is Romans chapter 13 and verse 6. It is recognizing the fact that it is going forward with one of those fours to point out that because of the that that starts the second clause... That explains why the gospel was preached to those that were already physically dead so that they were instructed to live the holy lives that Peter was also, notice the word also, preaching to those that were living to live the holy lives. But in so doing, living a holy life, there were going to be wicked men that would judge them as strange and would judge them that they don't deserve to live in this world and would cut them off. It's not all men because the gospel was not preached to all men. It's not dead in trespasses and sins because the immediate previous use of the word just a couple words earlier is about physical death and the passage has been about physical death. There was gospel preached to some that are physically dead and it wasn't preached to all that are physically dead but there's a certain group of people that are judged according to men in the flesh, judged, condemned, cut off. A sentence is passed against them, but they live in the Spirit according to God. God approves of them, while the wicked world disproves of them and kills them. God preserves them in the Spirit. And how many men are there like that? Did we have a brother spend a whole week reading to us martyrs? There's many. We tend to forget them. But is there a crowd, an illustrious crowd under the altar of God in Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 through 11? Now, brethren, I could lay out all the reasons for taking this position. I'm going to suggest that those of you who love this kind of puzzle solving will go to the outline and satisfy yourself. 
about all the issues where there are variable options to end up with one of 20 or one of more different positions on the text. What the text is saying is God is coming and He's going to judge those wicked men for what they did against the saints of God. But when He raises the dead and they all give an account, it should be the care, and it was the care of the early Christians, what happens to our dead brethren. Just like the Thessalonians were worried about them, Paul relieved their fears by explaining about them. And even, even when some Corinthians had died before their time, the Apostle Paul explained that their death was evidence that they were not condemned with the world, but had everlasting life in 1 Corinthians 11. Because there was great concern that those who had believed the gospel, why were they being killed? Hasn't Jesus abolished death? For for this cause was this cause was the gospel preached to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, wicked men would see their holy lives resulting from believing and obeying the gospel and put them to death, but they live unto God in the Spirit, according to God in the Spirit. That little prepositional phrase, in the Spirit, is that modifying God? Is God in the Spirit? Or is that little prepositional phrase modifying some other men that are now in a spirit capacity, a disembodied spirit, without their body? And that middle clause is describing their bodies being killed because in the flesh is modifying the same group that is in the Spirit. It's the ones being judged, and they're being judged by the wicked men. But it's in the flesh that they're dying. It's in their bodies. What does our pastor do from Monday through Saturday? God is my witness. These are horrifying dilemmas. If you never want to misdivide a verse of Scripture, and there's 20 options. So what is it saying? There is great comfort, brethren, for those of you that have believed the gospel that are alive. It was also preached to those that have already died physically, who were put to death by their enemies, the enemies that are going to be coming after you, that the rest of this epistle talks about. But though they were judged by men in the flesh as not worthy of living in this world, God has judged them worthy of living with Him, and in the Spirit they are with Him. In the body they died only. That's what it's teaching. If you want to look at some of the uh, scriptural gymnastics necessary to arrive at that conclusion, there, they'll be in an outline. Let me remind you, and I, do not, I, I only want to magnify the office. I'm only in the office by the grace of God. I'm Balaam's ass. I'm Balaam's transportation. But I don't want to misdivide the Word of God. And there's one being in this world, universe that knows that. And I want you to pray for your pastor to never misdivide it. We haven't come up with any new strange doctrine. We're not offering second chances to anybody in the tribulation. We're not offering second chances to those antediluvians that repented when they saw the rain start to hit them on their cheeks. I can't believe that a man that would call himself a minister would arrive at something like that. With what the Bible says, that was the world of the ungodly that perished. The Bible, this man's going to teach us in the second epistle that water overflowed that ungodly world. But you pray for your pastor and let's pray for all men to rightly divide the word of truth. And remember that in this cause, in this work, 
I don't get to check my work with a reconciliation. I loved accounting. Accounting is a logical discipline necessary for the financial reporting of businesses, and I love it. There is a debit and a credit for everything, and in the end, it is all going to wash, and if you've done your job right, it is going to come out to zero. And if you build a bridge, and you don't build it right, then when you drive the first ten semis over it, it falls in. God being my helper, I've tried to give you the sense of that sixth verse, and I believe that's what it means. And that's the sense that is intended there. He is, he is trying to comfort these people. You are going to be called strange. They are going to be your enemies. There is a fiery trial, verse 12, that is going to come upon you, and it's going to try you. You are, you're going to suffer, but let's make sure you're suffering as a Christian. And those that have died and gone before you, the gospel was also preached to them, not just to you, that, go, that men of this world might go ahead and judge them, but God's approved them, and in the Spirit they are in heaven. Their bodies were cut off. They're part of the dead that will be judged in verse 5, but their spirits are in heaven. Okay. Well, I guess that the rest of this passage should be easy sailing. Watch this. Verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Is that 70 A.D. or the second coming of Jesus Christ? Be very careful. But the end of all things is at hand. If it's the second coming of Jesus Christ, Peter's saying it's at hand when Paul said it's not at hand. But it's the end of all things. How can the destruction of Jerusalem be the end of all things for Jews that are living 600 miles away in central northern western Turkey, 600 miles away from Jerusalem, separated by the Mediterranean Sea? They would barely even hear about it. If, it, if the end of all things is referring to the Mosaic system, temple, priest, Jerusalem, all that Old Testament stuff that was stripped off the land in 70 AD by Titus and his armies, what would that mean to a Christian? Why would the, why would the cure be, be therefore sober and watch unto prayer? How's being sober and staying watchful as a Christian and praying help those in Judea? Shouldn't it be cough up some money and send it across? You know, we could go on and on for it. Listen, Peter is a little different than Paul. And he just throws it out there. But can we tell what it is? This is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, But the end of all things is at hand. The context following indicates suffering as a Christian, not suffering as a Jew. Because you might say, you know, the preterists, you know, you know what preterists do with a verse like this, don't you? There's not even a question in their mind. This verse is absolutely 70 AD because everything in the Bible was solved and settled. Every prophecy, every prophecy in 70, every prophecy, the new heavens and the new earth, the millennium, the, the, the casting of the devil into the lake of fire, the second judgment, the resurrection of all bodies, all of it to a full preterist, was fulfilled in 70 A.D. They grab every one of these verses. They would say, it has to be. Because that's all they see. But we look at what follows here. What, what is the description of what to do? It's not about sending money to helpless saints that are going to have to live in the mountains for a few months in Judea that are described in Matthew chapter 24. It's be therefore sober and watch into prayer. Okay. Yet Jerusalem was 600 miles away. The things ending soon there would be of little value to the Jews. This at hand 
should be viewed in light of God, ready to judge the quick and the dead. He gave us a little hint in verse 5, didn't he? It's the word ready. If you underline in your Bible, then underline at hand, underline ready, and draw a line between the two. Because the apostle gave us a little hint who was ready to judge the quick and the dead. Now, if he was ready when Peter wrote this in 60 A.D., and now it's 2014, is God ready to judge the quick and the dead? There was no impediment to him judging the quick and the dead except prophecies of his own that he was going to play out. He was ready to do it. Those men that were persecuting those Christians, those Christians that died at the stake could know that they were dying for the cause of Jesus Christ, and he was ready. But his long-suffering held his readiness back of exploding against this world and taking their enemies out of the way. Because he says so in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, where the, where the martyrs are crying unto him, How long, Lord, are you not going to avenge us? And he says, Just until the rest of your brethren get to die, then I'll do it. But he was ready to judge the quick and the dead. But the end of all things is at hand. Why would Peter say that they were at hand and Paul would say they weren't at hand? Because Paul would say they weren't at hand in the sense of the Thessalonians needed to hear it because they were terrified and were quitting their jobs and wandering about from house to house and were totally bent out of shape that the Lord Jesus Christ was going to immediately appear. And Peter is saying the end of all things. Paul said, first of all, that it wasn't immediate to cause such terror on their parts, that there were a couple of prophecies that needed to play out. Peter is saying that it is not far away and we should look for it as something that is coming and we should prepare ourselves for it. And Peter is the one, as we get to chapter, as we get to the second epistle that will do this. He'll say, when you are looking at timing passages of the second coming of Jesus Christ, remember this rule. 3.8. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Is two days at hand? Yes. And he defines himself. For those of you that can remember back a few years ago when I preached against preterism for a need raised in this assembly, I showed you that from the Bible, Deuteronomy working forward, there are many places where terminology, timing terminology, like at hand, is used in the Bible, meaning hundreds and even, yea, thousands of years. We have examples throughout the Bible. And Peter gives us that precious rule in 3.8, and he is not talking about anything else but the second coming of Christ in 3.8. And he tells us, God's timing is not yours. God can view a thousand years as a day. Keep that in mind when you start accusing God of coming slowly. And so when Peter says that His coming is at hand, the end of all things is at hand, and you're saying, well, there's been 2,000 years and He hasn't come yet. He didn't mean that. He meant it if you defined at hand the way Peter defined it. And Peter told you how he defined it in chapter 3 and verse 8 of the second epistle. You say, that's just too neat. No, that's just the God that wrote the Bible. That's just the God that wrote the Bible. Because we work Second Peter 3 over very heavily in that preaching against preterism because it is a place that you want to go because that is where men, scoffers, accuse God of being slow. Second Peter chapter 3, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness. 
See, they, they look at the fact and they say, yeah, so what? There's a promise of His coming. The world has continued the same since the fathers fell asleep. They just blaspheme and they open their mouths and bark against God. And in dealing with that barking, because here it says all, the end of all things is at hand, but the end of all things hasn't come yet. If this is the second coming of Christ, then you start to raise skeptical questions in your mind and Peter stops you by saying, Two things. One, a thousand years is as one day. Two, that is long-suffering, and you should count that long-suffering as salvation for your soul in order to get things right. And let's look at the year 2015, if God grants it to us, as an opportunity for us to improve our lives in light of His coming. That's what's intended. But the end of all things is at hand. And what, we, what should we do because of that? Let's talk about being preppers now. Are there any preppers in here? We all want to be preppers. We all should be preppers. But we should be prepping for the right thing and the right way. Right. They're prepping for the end of the world. They're prepping for the end of America. They're prepping for Y2K. They're prepping for anything that comes along from their conservative pundits who spin the news and who spin the world and have a world perspective that isn't scriptural. They get afraid and they prep for it. They hoard up guns. They hoard up ammunition. They hoard up food. They hoard up batteries. They hoard up generators. If you want to prep that way, there's other places you can meet this morning. But I want you to be a prepper. I want you to be prepared for the coming of the Lord. Because it says here, the end of all things is at hand. That is the definition of a prepper. A prepper is someone who sees the end of the world or the end of a nation or a severe cataclysmic catastrophic event and they want to be prepared for it. Well, this catastrophic cataclysmic event is the end of the world as we know it. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we prepare for it? We live soberly. I must be about my father's business. Let's be more sober in 2015 than we have been in 2014. It may even include you changing how you have birthday parties for your children, because I mentioned that earlier. It may change how you drink. It may change how you eat. It may change how fast you make peace with your spouse. It may change what you think about, what you watch on television, how long you sleep, what you do with your time, how many chapters a day you read in your Bible, and how much time you spend in prayer. Thank you. I'm glad someone's in the text with me. Oh, brethren, but the end of all things is at hand, and what should we do about it? How do we prepare for it? Be ye therefore sober. Let's remember from what we started with in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21, earlier this morning, let us not be earthly minded, let us be heavenly minded. Let's not be belly worshipers by looking at the things of this life. Let our conversation be in heaven from whence we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body into a glorious body like unto His. Yes, we want to be preppers the right way. My poor father and I have heard so much junk in our lifetimes about prepping for a different day instead of prepping for this day. If somebody were to talk about prepping for the collapse of our nation in some way, if they put this one first, I would listen to them. The problem is they always put the other one first, and that is the emphasis of their babbling with their mouth. If they always put this one first, and they were spiritually minded, then there may be a place. Because the Lord and Savior Himself, when He taught in Matthew chapter 24, He said, Woe to the women that give suck in those days. 
And he told them where they should go to the mountains of Judea when they had to flee from the city of Jerusalem. He told them things. He warned them. And so there isn't anything wrong in being prepared for a national disaster. Our nation deserves a disaster. It's headed in the direction of a disaster. But you're overlooking one thing. There's a God and a Son, Jesus Christ, who rules all the nations with a rod of iron and who by His power is able to subdue all things to Himself, even changing our vile bodies into His corrupt body. He upholds all things by the word of His power and by Him all things consist. And He has for 50 years of my lifetime held back judgment on this nation which we thought was going to fall in the 60s. And I love Him. And He's a great Savior. And do you know what? If we will live righteously in 2015, whether this nation falls or not in the next one year or ten years, He can save us in the middle of it. Do you believe that about our Lord Jesus Christ? He can He can set a table in the wilderness. He can make us fat in the presence of our enemies. And But you know how we get there? By being preppers this way. You're unbalanced. Thank you. I'm glad that you got my message. Spiritual things first, then natural. Is that taught in 1 Corinthians 15? We want to put the, the, the natural, the natural body comes first, then the spiritual. We want to put the spiritual things ahead of any natural things. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch into prayer. You know what Peter's going to do in the second epistle, don't you? With the new heavens and the new earth and the fervent heat melting everything and everything being burned up. I mean, he, he, he speaks of it like it's just about to happen. And he says, you know, we should be so living our lives that we may be found of him in peace in that day without spot and blameless. See, he, he, he's, Peter was a prepper. Did Peter prep the other way too? I want, listen, I want to preach the whole counsel of God to you, brethren. Acts chapter 2 and verse 40. After Peter told the men in the day of Pentecost, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you and to your children, and as many as the Lord our God shall call. That was the end of his sermon. But then it says this in verse 40, And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourself from this generation. We live in a terrible generation. God's judgment should fall on this nation. You know, it's been said, and I don't quite like using these words too much because my God doesn't have to apologize for anything he does. But some people have said if God doesn't judge this nation soon, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. I think he's judging this nation already if you just open your eyes. They're murdering their babies and they're they're shaming themselves with disgusting abominations between themselves. He called that a judgment that was inconvenient in Romans chapter 1, and I like to watch it. If you just think about it for a moment, that's what they're doing to themselves. They're shaming themselves and destroying themselves even while we get to have these lives that we're living right now, we get to come into this house and preach anything that we want according to God's Word. I hope that I've said enough that you... Brethren, are you sober? When the God of heaven writes the four categories of humanity, old men, what does he say? Sober. Old women, young women, young men. What does he bring up again for young men? Sober. Let's, the men of this church, old and young, be more sober than we've ever been. Life is serious. The future is serious. The end of all things is serious. That God is ready to judge the quick and the dead and that all men shall give an account is serious stuff. 
Let us lead our families. Let us lead our children by being sober. That doesn't mean we can't have fun. Listen, I loved last Sunday's psalm, Psalm 126, presented by Colin. It said our mouths are filled with laughter, but it's about holy objects, not about foolish objects. Do you know that our nation will watch a 30-minute television program with only 20 minutes of programming because there's 10 minutes of commercials, but there's laughing every eight seconds? And they're laughing about insanity. And they call that primetime television. Sober. And watch unto prayer. Brethren, how do we watch the times and watch our families and watch our souls to be ready for the coming of the Lord? We watch unto prayer. It leads us to prayer to pray for God's strength and His Spirit among us to strengthen us, that we will live the holy lives that we should. This, these, these little words right here are written by Peter. And there was a time when he didn't watch unto prayer. And there were three of those times in succession in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that man, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, told people living who knew that he hadn't watched unto prayer to watch unto prayer. I'm humbled by my brother Peter. And I want us to watch unto prayer. Can you, will you pray more in 2015 than 2014? Verse 8. And above all things. Oh, when, when the Bible tells me that something is more important than other things, I get excited because I'm simple and I want the Lord to lay things out for me. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Above all things, have what kind of charity? Fervent charity. What is charity? Love. How, how can we distinguish love and charity if there is to be any distinction made? And I meant that. How do we distinguish? Love is more active and positive, and charity is more merciful in dealing with the, what, we would, what we might call the negative aspects of love forgiving another person, forbearing another person, thinking no evil. That's the charitable response to somebody hurting you, somebody doing something against you. Now, what does this verse teach? This verse teaches that when you put 170 sinful souls together into one church, there is going to be a multitude of sins. These sins are not sins against God because these are sins that can be covered by fervent charity. These are sins against each other. And oh, are they going to happen? Brother, since you got back from your cruise, would you please forgive everyone that's offended you and sinned against you and transgressed against you? Would you simply pass over it and defer your anger to another day? We all have to do it. I'm just using you as an example, Brother Mark. This verse is, this verse is so true. We offend each other. We transgress against each other. We sin against each other. The Bible uses all of these words interchangeably. Above all things, above all things, put on, I mean, have fervent charity among yourselves. Notice, this is not one another. It's not the compound pronoun one another. This is among yourselves. The whole church should be known for having fervent charity in all of us. And, and we should put it on above all things. It is what will hold the church together. It is the glue that holds us together. Listen, we are bound by the Holy Ghost 
and we are blood-bought brothers in the family of God, but we keep ourselves with peace by practicing fervent charity toward each other. That means we intensely and passionately, eagerly and cheerfully forgive each other for offending. Love is the greatest. I've preached it to you before. You can go online and look up an outline called Love is the Greatest. It is flat out the greatest above all things. Fervent charity. Do you know Peter has already addressed this? Remember chapter 1 and verse 22? Seeing ye have purified your souls. How do you purify your soul? Is there a way to believe the gospel and put it into practice that you can purify your soul? There is. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit... Because this is where the Spirit leads us. Because when we start listing fruit of the Spirit, what do we start with? Now the fruit of the Spirit is love. love. Yeah. Through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. I'm in 1 Peter 1.22. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Oh, he wrote it in chapter 1. Why does he need to write it in chapter 4? Because in the amount of time it takes us to read from chapter 1 to chapter 4, somebody has offended us, and there's another sin to add to the multitude of somebody transgressing against me. And so love needs to be above all things. Oh, I believe I, I did not... Oh, brethren, the Lord has led us. And He has not led us on a, secu- on a circuitous path. He has led us plainly and directly. There was a time when this subject of love and charity was barely preached in this church. And I've promised you that at least once a quarter you may see it and know it or you may not see it and know it. I will address this subject because above all things we need to have fervent charity among ourselves. Because that's what hides and covers a multitude of sins. Churches blow up over the dumbest, the, the dumbest things, the most selfish things, the most idiotic things. Clicks develop in churches over the most foolish things. There should be no clicks in here. We should love one another and embrace each other and have fervent charity toward each other and forgive everyone. Oh, Lord, help us to do that. Christians, we have a greater example of love than anyone else. We have a greater We've been shown a greater love than anyone else. By God our Father, we have received a greater commandment than anyone else. Lord, help us to this end. What hinders, what hinders covering sins? Why don't we just cover sins like the Lord covers ours? Because we're cruel. Do you have a cruel gene? Some families have cruel genes. Are you have, do you have envy? Do you resent and are you malicious toward others? It's hatred, it's pride, it's revenge, it's selfishness, it's wickedness. That hinders covering sins. The sins are going to happen because we're all sinners. It's just like a husband and a wife getting married. Those are two sinners that are going to go live 24-7 with each other. They're going to offend each other. That's why husbands are told, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Because the bitterness is bound to arise by the nature of two sinners, one being under authority, one being in authority, causing disappointment by the one in authority. Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Glorious men simply pass over transgressions. I love Proverbs 19 and verse 11. The discretion of a man deferreth his anger. Boy, is anger a pretty powerful thing? Is it sort of like Mount Vesuvius? How do you defer it? You had better be armed with the mind of Christ. To defer anger, 
Defer means to put off. Accountants know exactly what it is. To defer puts it to some other pay period in the future. Defer it. Get it away from the present. Defer. The discretion of a man deferreth his anger. It puts his anger off. He is not going to let it out. And it is his glory to pass over a transgression. Now that transgression is not one against God. That transgression is one against you. If that transgression is against you and it's against God, if the party repents that our word means everything, then it reduces to the same thing. You forgive. You pass over. It is your glory to pass over a transgression. That is what the wise man said. That is such a wonderful verse. It's been one of my favorite verses to get rid of the bile that likes to boil inside and flush it and defer and say, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to write anything. I'm going to defer. I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to let it dissipate. I'm going to pass over it. Because at the moment, I usually can't pass over it. But if I defer the anger and let it dissipate, does anybody here know anything about what I'm talking about? I, I can't be glorious at the moment because anger isn't glorious. But if you can defer the anger, I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to write anything. I'm not going to tell my wife. Sherry isn't even going to know that this happened. I'm going to go to bed. There's part of me saying, if you were a man, if you were a man, you let them have it both barrels. You'd blow their heads off. You know that you've got enough material to shred them. You could throw them in a wood chipper right now, watch the blood splatter the neighborhood. That's my flesh. I just trust that verse and it's worked like it's worked wonderful. Amen. Defer your anger. You're going to bed? Yep. You know what happens when you get up in the morning? It's fifty percent or more. Less. Sometimes it can disappear in a good night of sleep. Right. And if it's still there, well, you know, I'm I'm still hot and bothered by it because I'm still thinking critical thoughts. I'll put it off another day. You know, by the time that third day comes around, eh, forget it. The Lord's forgiven me 10,000 talents. That's but 100 pence. Hit the silver lever. That's one way. That's the glorious man. Then I'll tell you what an inglorious man can do, and I'm sorry to call it an inglorious man, but the inglorious man is told how to do it in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, that if a brother has trespassed against you, then you should go and tell him his fault. I need the next words. Between thee, between thee and him alone. That's the inglorious way. Because that means you gotta go confront somebody for something they did to you. You aren't important enough to go confront anybody for something they've done to you. That's just a rule that will help you. But if you, if you can't be glorious, then at least be inglorious the Bible way and use the Matthew 18 route. That if somebody has trespassed against you and done something wrong, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone, alone, alone. That doesn't mean talking about it at home. That doesn't mean talking about it with your spouse. That doesn't mean telling your family. That doesn't mean blasting off in the car on the way home from church. Alone. Churches would thrive covering sins that way. Lord, help us. Do you know that in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, through 7, that passage about love has 15 phrases that define love for us. A number of them are odd-sounding phrases for a definition of love like suffereth long. 
Now, do we have suffering in this passage? Christ's suffering. If we arm ourselves with the, with likewise with the same mind of Christ, this is another way that we suffer. Somebody hurts us. I'm not going to do anything about it. You know, if it was my old, if it was my old self in a former time, I don't need them. I can't stand them. I'll get rid of them. If all of you are scared of your pastor now, you haven't, you haven't known him yet then because he hasn't changed. Uh, that's just his flesh. And so Paul would say, I speak as a fool at times. Lord, help us. It says, suffereth long. When I, when I look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, suffers long, uh, is not easily provoked. Is that a definition of love? Is not easily provoked. Okay. Yeah, somebody can beat on me and slap me and ask me to go a mile with them and take a cloak. I'll give them my coat also. Not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. See, these are, these are aspects of real Bible love. You never, you never put evil on the constructions of another person. You trust that they're the very best. Charity never faileth. Now, now these three abide, faith, hope, and charity, but the greatest of these is charity. Let's go to the next verse very quickly, very quickly. Use hospital. Do you understand verse 8? Above all things, let's have fervent charity in this church. It'll cover all the multitude of sins that are going to arise among us. If somebody sins a sin against God, it becomes of a public nature. We are going to exclude that person as fast as we ever have because this verse is not talking about that. Verse 9, use hospitality one to another without grudging. One to another. That's one person to every other church member considered one at a time. Use hospitality. What is hospitality? The reception and entertainment of guests, visitors, or strangers with liberality and goodwill. That is hospitality. You need to open your homes and have people in them, sit and feed them, rejoice with them, embrace them, ask them about their lives, tell you that you tell them that you love them, tell them that you are glad they are members of our church. This is what ought to go on among family members of the Church of Jesus Christ. The world's families do it, and you may do it with your family. The world's friends do it, and you may do it with some of your friends but we're supposed to do it to the whole church. The, the world's families get together and eat together and embrace each other and show liberality and have a good time, a warm time of fellowship and friendship and acceptance and, and love and concern. And these times when we do them can be ended with prayer. They can be started with prayer. They can have prayer in the middle. They can involve Bible reading. They can involve update reading. They can involve anything to, be, to make them spiritually profitable. But look at the text. This is the same Peter. See, by the time he gets done with these 11 verses, he's got us. I mean, he's, he's hitting us. He's, hit, he's hitting excess of reveling. that we Revelry back there in verse 3. Banquetings, abominable idolatries, lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine. And here he's getting us with hospitality. Opening up your house or you open up a restaurant for them. Costs a little bit more to take somebody to a restaurant. But you put them at the table and everything's for them. Get anything you want, brother. Anything you want off that menu. The bigger and more expensive, the happier I'll be. If you can afford it. If you can't afford it, the wise man stops his lust and the pride of life and has them at home for popcorn. Or a couple ballpark francs that you grilled for. It only has to cost a couple bucks. 
used hospitality one to another without grudging. Why does Peter have to say without grudging? The same reason Paul has to say without bitterness about husbands loving their wives, because that's a tendency. If I were to have people over, it'll interrupt my schedule. It'll take too much of my time. I'm just not comfortable doing that. They just mess up the house. Then i got to clean it again. I don't know what the list of reasons is. What reasons do you have for not doing it? Because the Peter's telling us to do it. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. We are family and we are friends. In Christ Jesus, we are blood brothers. This is the family of God. As every man hath received the gift... Even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The gift is singular because it's a collective noun. A collective noun means that it's referring to a plurality of gifts because that's what the word manifold means. A diverse and different kind of gifts. The variation in the church of Jesus Christ. Every one of you have abilities, empathies, gifts, convictions, And they all ought to be used in a particular way. As every man, this is something that applies to the whole church, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same. Serve each other, one to another, as good stewards the manifold grace of God. If God's put in your heart to love people that you didn't love before, before you were saved, then show it now. Because God has bestowed some of His grace in your life, causing you to love other people, then let it out! And serve one another that way. And the church does a good job overall. But brethren, it's 2015. We can do better. Let's do better. As every man hath received the gift, you know it's plural, because when you get to the word manifold, the word manifold means manifold. Many different kinds of gifts. And uh, if you want more information on this gifts, then go to Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, because I'm out of time, but I don't want to quit until I'm done, if you can tell. Go to Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. The outline is on the website. The preaching is on the website where the gifts are listed. There's only going to be two of them here, and it's in verse 11. Speaking and ministering or serving. Over there, there's a whole long list, even showing mercy. Even giving is described as a gift in Romans 12, 3 through 8. And so whatever God's given you, what if He's blessed you financially and you're able to give more? Then then look at it as the manifold grace of God in your life and be a giver. Be a Barnabas in our church. Be a Philemon in our church. Be a Gaius in our church. Whatever it is that God's given you, let's do it as the stewards of the manifold grace of God. God's given us something and we're stewards. We're, we're We're treasurers. We're in charge of the treasury. God's given the grace into the treasury of our church and into the treasury of our lives. Let's not take our gift and fold it up in a napkin and set it on a shelf because that slothful servant is judged by the Lord. Let's use it. And let's use it liberally. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Whatever your gift might be, there's a lot of servants in this church. Let's serve as the many-fold variations of the grace of God in our lives. If any man speak, here's a minister. Let him speak as the oracles of God. Every minister should be confined to the word of God. He is the ambassador of God. He is the representative of God. He is the mouthpiece of God. And he better speak as the oracles of God. He better humble himself to the word of God. 
and what God's given him and not speak above it. I'm not an apostle. I'm not a prophet. I'm not an evangelist. I'm a pastor and a teacher. I'm a bishop. And I have to study to figure out anything in the Word of God. God gives me nothing supernaturally. And that is holding my gift to what God gave me and not pretending I'm something above it. And if I'm not diligent in applying myself, then I'm aspiring to something beneath it. And we don't want to do either. We want to be as faithful as we can be. If any man speak, and I hope in this church, every word of God is honored and defended and exalted. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, that could be a deacon, it could be a minister, it could be anyone in the church serving others, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. If God's made you a deacon, don't try to be a pastor. If God's made you good in food service, then don't try to build something. I'm just using examples. I don't like examples. But I know you can't understand the Word of God without a few. If any man minister, if any man's a servant in the church of Jesus Christ, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. He should put out everything that God's given him, but he shouldn't aspire to anything above it. And that especially is the lesson from Romans 12, 3-8. And here's the end of it all. Why do we do all this? Why do we do all this? Oh, verse 11 ends well. Even Peter has to cut loose at times and put an amen in there. because This is why we do everything. This is why I'm here today. This is why I hope you're here today. That God, in all things, may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God's put us together in a church to glorify God by the work Jesus Christ has done in our lives and to Him belongs praise and dominion forever and ever. Blessing and honor and riches and wisdom and glory and power be unto Him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen.